Good morning, and thank you for joining us today for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today, we're going to uh, be joined by our guest, Dr. Ethan Nadelman. Dr. Nadelman earned a bachelor's degree, a law degree, and a Ph.D. from Harvard University, and a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics. He taught politics and public affairs at Princeton University from 1987 to 1994, and he then went on to found the Drug Policy Alliance, a New York City-based nonprofit organization working to end the war on drugs. Described by Rolling Stone as the driving force for the legalization of marijuana in America, Ethan is known as a high-profile critic and commentator on U.S. and international drug control policies. Ethan's books include Cops Across Borders, The Internationalization of U.S. Criminal Law Enforcement. It's uh, Pennsylvania State University Press. He also wrote Policing the Globe, Criminalization and Crime Control in International Relations. That's Oxford uh, University Press. The uh, Drug Policy Alliance, which Ethan founded, has as its mission the following. Uh, The Drug Policy Alliance envisions a just society in which the use and regulation of drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights, in which people are no longer punished for what they put into their own bodies, but only for crimes committed against others, and in which the fears, prejudices, and punitive prohibitions of today are no more. The mission of Drug Policy Alliance is to advance those policies and attitudes that best reduce the harms of both drug use and drug prohibition, and to promote the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and bodies. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Ethan. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Richard. Pleasure. The um, the last time uh, we saw each other was just recently at the psychedelic conference in Oakland, uh, and it was an international conference. And it's one of the topics that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, just as a beginning, to let you know, I'd like to talk about that conference. I'd like to uh, talk about the new administration's policies, and uh, we're going to start really with a, a, a bit of a history of the drug war. But right before we go into that, I want to tell you uh, something that just came over the wire. You may know about it already, but our listeners don't. Um, Some years ago, uh, your colleague, Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum, was on this program, and she was talking, going to be talking about, and did talk about, harm reduction. At the time, 10 minutes before um, the program, and we got a call right here in our little studio in Mendocino, California, from the White House. And I was so taken aback by the call that I asked uh, my engineer, I said, please get their phone number and hang up and call, tell, tell them you want to call back, because I really couldn't believe that the White House was calling us. And, uh, and so Michaela called back, and sure enough, it was the White House. It was Dr. David Murray. I think perhaps you know him. And... Uh, mm-hmm. He had heard that Marsha was coming on this program, and he was trying to wedge his way into the program at the last minute 
in order to counter what she had to say about harm reduction, and particularly uh, about the efficacy of needle exchange. And I also at another time, by the way, had Joey Tranquino on the program, who was a pioneer out here in California on needle exchange. Okay, fast forward from that period to this headline that I just got before the show. Las Vegas is preparing to be the first city in the nation with vending machines dispensing clean needles in an effort to help combat the spread of hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV, while also possibly leading some drug users into treatment. These three machines will be available for users starting in May. How about that? Did you know about that, Ethan? I actually, Richard, I had not heard about the Las Vegas development. That's fascinating. I'll tell you, the first time I saw one of these machines was in Bern, Switzerland, in the early 1990s. And it was basically a simple, look like a vending machine, and one would either insert, one could insert either a, a used syringe or a franc, you know, a Swiss currency, equal right. to, I think, 50 cents or a dollar at the time. And what would pop out would be a sterile syringe, uh-huh. right? And it, it, and it basically makes all the sense in the world. And here's why. The first thing is, is that for people who need sterile syringes, for people who are injecting drugs illicitly, right, that you want them to be using sterile syringes, not to be sharing syringes, right? The HIV epidemic spread the way it did, not because not because syringes spread HIV/AIDS, and not because AIDS spreads by you know all by itself. It's, but it happened as a result of people who were infected with HIV sharing syringes with people who were not. So you want to do everything possible to stop that sharing process. You want to make sure that sterile syringes are readily and easily and legally available, and that if these machines can make them available. 24-7 in the middle of the night or in locations that don't have high foot traffic but where people you know, know that they're there, that's going to have a significant positive effect in reducing HIV, reducing hep C, reducing other infectious diseases. The second thing is, from all the evidence we can tell, there's nothing about making sterile syringes legally available, right, whether it's through a pharmacy whether it's through a needle exchange program or whether it's through a vending machine, there's no evidence that shows that making syringes easily available results in more people using syringes. It's not as if you have people who are, you know, young people or others who never thought about injecting drugs, and then they go, oh, my God, now I can get a sterile syringe at the vending machine or the sterile syringe here, and I'm going to inject drugs. So it's one of these interventions um, that I think is entirely a net plus and a positive. And they're very inexpensive. I mean, compared to the cost of having a needle exchange program, which are also important, and which I think Las Vegas also has, um, I think it's a, it's a very positive development that, uh, that Las Vegas is actually going to do with it. I, I didn't know they were actually moving forward, but that's good to hear if it's in fact the case. So why did the United States' drug czar, Dr. David Murray, feel the necessity to call this program in order to wedge his way in at the last moment in order to counter our guest, well, our medical sociologist, Dr. Marshall Rosenbaum. Why, did he, why was he so anti that he felt the need to do that? Well, I, I reach out to you. First of all, David Murray was not, he was a deputy drug czar during the Bush administration. Okay. First, right? 
secondly, uh, the man, I've debated him uh, with great pleasure uh, a number of times, uh, you know, debating him on uh, in Chicago. I've debated him on uh, uh, other formats as well. And, and uh, he and I debated in front of the Senate, U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee just last year. But what I can say about David Murray is that he really is something of a, uh, you know, I don't like to impugn the uh, character folks, but he's quite a bully. Um, and I think what he saw with Marsha is a very thoughtful and talented um, academic expert who published extensively, you know, books and articles, you know, studies on, on heroin and methadone and ecstasy, government-funded studies, and then really led the effort of the Drug Policy Alliance around trying to promote safety-first approaches with young people and drugs. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, and I, think, I think what David Murray saw was an opportunity to bully her because she's not the person who's going to get out there and, and go jump into, a, you, know, a, you know, the boxing match with a guy like Murray. I'll do that with pleasure. Um, so I just thought it was David Murray sort of taking advantage to put out his, uh, you know, his propaganda. And the fact of the matter is that David is also somebody who has pretended to be about advancing science, but when you scratch the surface, is all about a highly punitive ideological approach to drugs, which is the one that dominated in both Democratic and Republican administrations, and that it was only in the last few years of the Obama administration that we saw some pulling back from that. Highly punitive approach to drugs. Let's use that, Ethan, and go back and give us a brief history, we'll do it together, of the drug war going way back into the 1870s with the Chinese immigrants? Well, I mean, you know, Richard, the origins, if you look, you know, many of these drugs, I mean, cannabis, but even cocaine, even the opiates, morphine, and for a while heroin were all legal in the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century. But if you look at the origins of the, of the, um, of the criminal prohibitions on drugs, what you see is that by and large, the decision about which drugs to criminalize and which not had relatively little to do with the relative risks of the substance and much more to do with who used and who was perceived to be using these substances. So, for example, in the 1870s, when the majority of opiate consumers were older women, mostly white women, who were using them for all their aches and pains and for menopause and for their period and all this stuff, because there, no, there was no Motrin, there was no penicillin, there was no nothing, nobody thought about criminalizing the opiates back then, because nobody wanted to put their you know, auntie or grandma, or grandma behind bars. It was when the Chinese started immigrating to the U.S., to California, Nevada, taking, you know, jobs, working the railroads, the mines, whatever, going back home at the end of the night, smoking a, a little bit of opium the same way they did in the old country, the same way the white people were having their drink of alcohol at the end of the night. That's when you got the first opium prohibition laws in America, in Nevada, in California, all about xenophobic you know, reactions to the Chinese and their fears of them and their opium dens and their opiates and what they would do to their precious white women and luring them into opiate addiction and enslaving them and all this. You know, the first, the first cocaine prohibition laws were in the South in the early 20th part of the 20th century directed at black men, you know, snorting this, you know, you know white powder and forgetting their proper place in Southern society. And, you know, and that's when you got the first prohibition. First time a, a police department ever said, well, you know, a 22 won't suffice, we need a 45, it's because you need that to bring down a Negro crazed on cocaine. The 
first anti-marijuana laws were in the, in the Southwest and the Western states, beginning around El, El Paso, Texas, and getting into California, beginning in the teens of the last century. Um, and that was all about prejudice and stigma against Mexican-Americans and Mexican migrants, right? In every case associated, you know, what were these darker-skinned people going to be doing with these drugs? What were they going to do to our precious white women and our kids? That type of fear. And I mean, and quite frankly, Richard, I mean, even alcohol prohibition was to some extent um, about a broader struggle between the white, white Americans and the not so white, white Americans, right? Between the white, white Americans who came to this country from northern and western Europe in the late 18th, early 19th century, and the not so white, white Americans who came from eastern and southern Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century. Right, you know, bringing their their beer and their vino and their and their schlimowitz, right? I mean, it was that broader, you know, cultural struggle. So understanding that when we look at which drugs are criminalized, where as opposed to which ones are legally regulated, you know, it, it's not about the relative dangers. It's much more to do with who uses and who is perceived to use those substances. So the the and the, the, the anti is not even unique in that regard. By the way, other countries have followed this pattern as well, but the, we've taken it. To a xenophobic pattern of punishing the Chinese uh, with regard to opium, the uh, the blacks in the South with regard to cocaine, the marijuana laws against the uh, Mexicans, and that was all until about the 1920s. Then we had prohibition, as you just explained. But then something even bigger happened that you are well aware of, which is the appointment in 1935 of Harry Anslinger as the first chief of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Yeah. Well, Richard, I would not say that was the more important variable. I mean, Harry Anslinger had been the head of the foreign control section of the Federal Bureau of Alcohol Prohibition in the, um, in the late 20s, early 30s. And then in 1930, he moves over to become the first director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He initially is focused on the heroin issue. And is not keen to jump onto the marijuana issue, but as a kind of as a sort of anti, you know the kind of racist ethnic xenophobic center around marijuana starts to build, um, you know as reefer madness starts to build, Anslinger sees an opportunity, and that way, a few years into his tenure, he decides he's going to run with this, and run with it he does, and so he does play an important role. But it's important to understand that you know Anslinger plays a key role. Um, on, in terms of federal legislation, yes. he plays a key role as a major figure in building the international, um, you know, sort of drug, pro, drug prohibition regime and the treaties. But in terms of what's going on domestically in the U.S., a lot of that was already happening before Anslinger sort of comes in to sort of, you know, take it to the next level. He took it to the next level by, didn't he go to the United Nations and, and embark on a whole uh, program of uh, creating a prohibition around the world? Well, I mean, you know, what happens is that, you know, the, the international drug control begins in the early part of the 20th century with the Shanghai Convention, a Hague Convention, that are focused overwhelmingly on the issue of opium and the threat of the opiates. And that's something where the U.S. plays a role, but China's playing a role, others are playing a role, right? And Slinger, as head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, what he does is begin to spend a lot of time and effort trying to assert the kind of U.S. punitive approach in international circles. He's not alone. I mean, if you look at the cannabis issue, Anslinger's there, but then you got situations like the government of Egypt, you know, having a very
becoming an advocate. So, so Anslinger plays an important, powerful role. Well, I think he's head of FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, from like 1930 to 62. I mean, he's not quite as long as Edgar, Edgar Hoover, but in there a long time. So he does play a very pernicious role. But I think that in the context, it's, it's quite possible that if somebody other than Anslinger had been appointed to that job in 1930 or those decades, that U.S. drug policy probably would have landed up being fairly punitive under somebody else as well. You know, Anslinger, you know, had his particular way of doing things, and he was in many respects an evil force in all this and an important one. But the broader circumstances in which he emerged and did what he did probably would have predetermined other people, other potential heads, doing bad stuff as well. I mean, he had a reputation as being an ardent racist. And uh, is it not true that he had Billie Holiday arrested in her hospital room in New York at uh, in Bellevue? Well, you, you know that Jagger story? Hoover was, I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, sure. Jagger Hoover. I mean, you know, how about him? Right. I mean, so the fact of the matter is, you know, the people being appointed to government back in the 1930s, whether by Democrats or Republicans, the odds were pretty decent that they were going to be racist in one way or another, and especially when you were dealing with issues like drugs. So, I mean, if you can imagine, imagine if Jagger Hoover had become head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, would things have been better or worse than having Anslinger there? Uh, So, (laughs) you know, you know what I'm saying? There was a setting. You know, Anslinger, you know, obviously, you know, people said that the federal narcotics farm, what they call the federal prison for narcotics addicts in Lexington, Kentucky, that the world's greatest jazz bands could have been assembled out of the people spending time in Lexington at that federal narcotics uh, prison slash farm. So what we're talking about here in terms of the antecedents of what we call the drug wars are policies that are based on racism and not on science at all. Isn't that what you're saying? I think that's, I think that's right. Racism and xenophobia have been driving forces. Now, mind you, flash forward to the late 60s, early 70s, when you have the reaction to Timothy Leary and, you know, LSD. Now, that was not about racism or xenophobia. That was about a cultural clash between... You know, the kind of young America, young liberal hippie, tune in, drop out America and older America. So once again, it was about, you know, a deviant minority, in this case, you know, young white youth challenging the system from Vietnam to everything else and and using these psychedelics. Right. And so that was a big factor. And then, as in all these cases, it's not as if drugs are totally safe. It's not as if we're not talking about a real problem. I mean, there was a real problem with opiate addiction. There has been a real problem with cocaine addiction. There was a problem with people getting badly hurt and even dying, you know, through the inappropriate use of psychedelics. So there's a real piece of this. Now, what the government and, their, and the drug war advocates do is they take the real piece, the real danger piece, and rather than saying, oh, my God, we have a serious threat of addiction or death or accidental death here, Let's find the proper public health approach, as we would do in case in the event of some other kind of epidemic emerging. What they do instead is run on a highly moralistic campaign tinted with xenophobic, racist, or other cultural phobias, right, to advance a fairly punitive approach, um, you know, that's driven by you know, oftentimes either fear or ulterior political objectives. Yes, I, I want to quote something from uh, the Drug Policy Alliance. 
uh, website. Uh, it says here that a top Nixon aide, John Ehrlichman, later admitted, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or against blacks. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night in the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That's yeah. the quote. Of course pretty we did. Xeno, pretty venal, pretty vicious. I mean, the only caveat I would put on all that is that nobody, I think, has ever tracked down, you know, the... Uh, the actual validated source of that. And so the author of that quote has, you know, sometimes said it wasn't meant intended. But the fact of the matter is the substance of the quote fully resonates with what the Nixon administration did. And mind you, the Nixon administration was, in many respects, much more mixed on drug policy than was, for example, the Reagan and Bush administrations that uh, reinitiated the drug war in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, Nixon, on the one hand, you know, used it as an opportunity to beef up a highly aggressive federal law enforcement bureaucracy to do the kind of targeting of the hippies and, and blacks in that sort of way. But at the same time, you know, he appointed a fellow, Jerry Jaffe, to be effectively the nation's first drug czar, who became a huge advocate of drug treatment. So you saw a very significant expansion of funding for methadone maintenance, for drug treatment. You saw an expansion of funding for research. And I contrast that with what happened under the late, later Reagan years and then the Bush years, where you really had a drug war that dwarfed anything that Nixon had done in terms of venality, in terms of magnitude, in terms of consequences for people's lives. But is, is it true? That is yeah. it true, yeah. Ethan, that, that, that Nixon, as far as you know, is it accurate that Nixon appointed a commission led by uh, Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer and that the commission in 1972 unanimously recommended decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana and Nixon ignored the report and, rec and, and instead made it uh, continued with criminalization? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when you look back, that is true, it, it, it's interesting when you look back at those days in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, what you saw is that oftentimes you'd have a Republican president who would nominate somebody to head a commission or for the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, who was a good establishment uh, Republican, and they would kind of rely on them to share their own prejudices and to do the quote-unquote right thing. And then what would happen is that Supreme Court justice or that ex-governor Schaefer heading the Drug Commission would actually look at the evidence and say, wait a second here, um, you know, common sense, the evidence and everything else actually says we should move in a new direction. I mean, the contrast with today, where when you have right-wing presidents appointing people to head commissions um, or to the courts, these people are now much, much more thoroughly vetted. There's a much higher likelihood that they're going to, you know, you know, carry out the, the, the punitive and regressive and reactionary um, policies and ideas for which they were initially chosen. So what you're saying is that in 72, 
when Nixon's appointed uh, commission head, Governor Raymond Schaefer, came out with a unanimous recommendation decriminalizing, he was going against the man who appointed him, and this is not going to Oh, very much so. I mean, Nixon was very disappointed by Schaefer. The people who were appointed to that commission were generally conservative, um, but, but, you know, they, had, they were thoughtful. I remember this was also an era. Don't forget, Richard, right? When we're talking about Republicans back in the 60s and 70s into the 80s, you know, you had quote-unquote liberal Republicans. You had establishment Republicans. Don't forget that many of Nixon's domestic policies outside the law enforcement area would now be regarded as pretty far to the left. You know, that what they were considering on health care and social welfare policy. I mean, Nixon became president when a more liberal, you know, domestic politics outside the criminal justice frame was fairly dominant. And people were buying into that social compact. And that was something that Reagan really began. You know, the Reagan revolution really was what initiated the uh, withdrawing from that. And the, in the way that we're seeing with such, you know, kind of in such a powerful and, 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 and highly polarized way today. I mean, Nixon could appoint the drugs are, it was inconceivable that Reagan or Bush um, would appoint, or even maybe Clinton would appoint the drugs are like Jerry Jaffe, you know, a guy who came from, you know, a smart Jewish doctor out of Chicago trying to do the right thing and, and, you know, trying to expand drug treatment and being willing to play that role. Um, you know, Nixon did a lot of ugly stuff. I mean, he turned, the DEA into the first really supranational uh, or, or you know transnational police force. He started an agency, a law enforcement agency that would do no knock raids. But remember, back then in the early seventies, I think we had barely a quarter million people behind bars. I mean, we had you know you know twelve percent of what we had behind bars today, and the population was what seventy six or seventy percent then of what it is today. So you know, in, in retrospect. The, the drug war of the of Nixon was a, was an ugly, terrible thing, but it pale compared to what we dealt with beginning in the late eighties and into the nineties. So what we're really to, what we're, the headline here is what we're talking about, Ethan, is over a hundred years of punitive policy based on politics and morality and really very unrelated to science and who really gets hurt by any of these medicines or these drugs. That's basically right. That's basically right. You know, you had little blips here and there. I mean, obviously, the early years of the Carter administration from 77 to 79 was a time when the whole notion of harm reduction began to advance without actually that language, you know, where Jimmy Carter famously said that, the harms of the drug laws should not be greater than the harms of the drugs themselves, where you had the federal government um, introduce its own federal marijuana decriminalization bill. So there was a little blip, a window back then. And we had, you know, a, a, a new, I thought it was going to be more than a blip, emerge in the last three years or so of the Obama administration, when they really began to embrace a, a whole set of more sensible drug policies, which were all set to continue under Hillary Clinton, but where you now have at the federal level, um, obviously, the disaster of Jeff Sessions and Trump and all of that, right? Now, that said, the vast majority of drug policies play out at both the health side and the criminal justice side, not at the federal level, but at the state and local level. And that's where we've seen the really dramatic, or dramatic, that's where we've seen the really substantial progress um, 
in dealing with, you know, addiction and, and addictive drugs and, and dramatic progress when it comes to marijuana reform. Folks, the, the voice that you've been just listening to is the voice of Dr. Ethan Nadelman. He's arguably one of the foremost experts on drug policy in the United States, if not in the world. Uh, he was nominated to be the drug czar, if you will, of the United States, though obviously with his bias towards science and, uh, and sane policy, uh, he did not uh, get that position. Keep listening. You're going to hear more from Dr. Ethan Nadelman and the antecedents and the present war on drugs and the effect that it's having on our society and on our personal sovereignty here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics comes from our members and from Dirt Cheap, bringing microbrewed organic potting soils and certified organic compost made in Mendocino County. Dirt Cheap is the home of Cocoa Blend, premium planting mix, and organic compost. By the truckload, reusable totes, and by the bag. Dirt cheap on Highway 1 across from the Botanical Gardens in Fort Bragg, California. It's scheduling a spring delivery at 707-964-4211. Back to our program. We're talking with Dr. Ethan Nadelman. He was the founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, the foremost information dissemination organization on drug policy in the United States. Welcome back, Ethan. Thank you, Richard. And just to say, DTA was not just information dissemination, but also obviously advocacy, like ballot initiatives and legislative reform and even litigation to advance this as well. Thank you. Ethan, I want to talk a bit. We're going to leave some time to talk about the the conference, of course. I want to talk about the word sovereignty and what that means to you with regard to drug policy particularly in your mission statement where it says to promote the sovereignty of individuals over their minds and bodies. Elaborate on that for us, please. Yeah, I mean, you know, it comes down in some respects. One can think of it in terms of John Stuart Mill's classic treatise on liberty, the book he wrote in the 1850s which basically laid out a kind of modern defense of liberty. I mean, essentially in utilitarian terms, but I think one can argue he actually went further than that. And it is to say, you know, he, John Stuart Mill made that fundamental distinction between what he called self-regarding activity and other-regarding actions. And that those actions that were other-regarding, you know, things that you did that hurt other people, that was the proper province of government. And part of the role of government was to deter and to discourage harms committed by individuals against others and to punish people where need be. So insofar as actions, however, were largely self-regarding, right, that they primarily impacted just the individual doer or, or, some, or two people involved in a consensual relationship, well, that was not the proper role of government to be involved, right? It might play some you know, public education or public moralizing role, but it was not to basically take away those people's freedom um, for doing that, that that activity. And that seems to me just about one of the most fundamental notions of a free society. You know, I'd also say that if you look, 
I mean, I sometimes look at the, the First Amendment of the Constitution as perhaps the one thing, the thing that more than anything else has kind of kept America and America as a political culture honest and free, right? And what does it say? You know, it talks about the freedom of spe- uh, speech, press, religion, and assembly, right? That, that these are things, and this was a fairly radical idea in its time, right? In the late 18th century and early 19th century, the basic notion that a free society, a free and dynamic society and democracy needed to tolerate a freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly uh, beyond what most governments had ever been felt comfortable doing or been willing to do, right? Now, it seems to me that beneath all those freedoms of, of speech, press, religion, and assembly is an implied freedom, which the founders never even thought would be a threat, which is our freedom over our consciousness, our freedom over our minds, right? And, and the understanding that, you know, you, 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 the ability to take in what we want through through you know, through, through listening, through reading, that this is all part of our freedom of consciousness. Well, psychoactive drugs are about consciousness, and, they, and this involves our freedom, our ability to open our minds, whether it's through psychedelics, our ability to, um, uh, 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 you know, to, to, to understand that our consciousness is not something that in any way should be criminally overseen by the government, by the government. And then the other part of this is apart from our minds and our, our intellectual consciousness, our bodies, right? I mean, the most profound thing a government can do to an individual, apart from executing them, is to take away their freedom, right? right. And the notion that in our free society, that the one thing for which people who have done no harm to others can still lose their freedom in our supposedly free society is for possessing or consuming some prohibited psychoactive substance. You know, the whole sort of evolution, in a way, the evolution of enlightenment notions in Western civilization the last couple hundred years was about moving from a criminal justice system in which all sorts of biblical laws and biblical prohibitions and things that didn't that involve quote-unquote biblical religious morals were, the, were part of our criminal law, moving into the contemporary society where the only things that people can lose their freedom for now are rape, are assault, are theft, are murder, are the harms we do to other people, with one big exception, which is the possession and the consumption of prohibited substances and the consensual sale of these prohibited substances between consenting consenting adults, right? And it seems to me... So long as we accept this exception to our enlightened principles about, about, about what freedom means, it seems to me it's, it's going to be relatively impossible to uproot this drug war, you know, this drug, the drug war in this country. And then we have what you said is either possibly false, but it looks like it's true that some of the arguments against sovereignty, if you will, against the use of these substances more directly has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with political expediency. Well, uh, I I mean, it's all kind of tied together, right? People don't really sort it out. And and I tend, um, I think, uh, you know, even legislators, even reactionary legislators um, operate within a broader mindset, a broader context. Right. You know, if you believe. 
many Americans do, that these drugs, these heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, that they are instantly addictive to anybody who uses them. And if you believe that, notwithstanding all the science showing that's false, well, that's going to lead you to have a view of these things as highly animate offenders in our society rather than inanimate, you know, plants and chemicals that, um, you know, that are far less dangerous than people assume, right? Right. Um, if you believe that, you know, you know, that these drugs are the equivalent of Ulysses and the siren, you know, this, you know, the sirens who no man could resist and will, you know, be brought to their death as a result, well, then you believe that government needs to be involved in, 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 in restricting the allure of these sirens, the allure of these powerful psychoactive substances, right? So there's always there's an element that, that of, of a real deep-seated fear and ignorance around this. And then, of course, when the principal people who are going to be victimized by your poorly informed policies are not your own sons and daughters and loved ones, but somebody else's sons and, 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 and daughters and loved ones, especially somebody else's black or brown or poor daughters or sons or loved ones, well, then it becomes a lot easier to just run with your prejudices rather than challenge them to think about what's right here. You know, one reason we're beginning to see, for example, today, a kind of kinder, gentler approach to dealing with the opioid epidemic is because this epidemic is hitting disproportionately in many respects, you know, white people and poorer white people and white people who can vote Republican, who vote Republican. And so there's a willingness to kind of look for alternatives to the punitive approach, alternatives to the criminalized approach these days in dealing with the opioids that was not there so long as black and brown people were seen as the principal victims and perpetrators. It, it still just confounds me that in this day and age, science has so little meaning to so many people. Because when you look at the data on the harm done, for example, by alcohol as compared to, say, marijuana and LSD, there's no comparison. And anyone who has studied this knows that. And yet we can... Well, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. But remember, there's a few things there, right? One, of course, is that alcohol is the devil we know, right? That's first. Um, and that secondly... The large majority of people who use alcohol throughout much of America, not all of it, but much of it, do so without doing much harm, right, or, or having or suffering much harm. So people have the devil we know, um, and it's one that we also see mostly being used responsibly. You know, by contrast, if you take some of these other drugs, you know, cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine, in point of fact, you know, significant percentages of people who use those drugs also are not doing any harm to anybody else or even much harm to themselves. But the only people who become visible, right, are the ones who get in trouble, right? I mean, I, I, let me, I, there's, a, there's a sort of um, example I give people to try to uh, uh, make this point clear, right? Imagine you have an editor of a newspaper, and he says to his young reporter, I want you to go out and write me a, a series of articles about alcohol in our county, our state. And the young reporter goes out, and he goes to the AA meetings, he goes to the detoxes, he goes to the jails where they have the alcoholics, he goes to the battered women's shelters where alcohol is keeping involved, and he comes in, comes back, and he's written this devastating portrait of alcohol, you know, in County X. And the editor looks at him and says, you 
know what? Uh, I'm sure this is all right, and this is all this is this is all this is all um, uh, all right and good. And then he opens up his drawer and he pulls out his bottle of booze from the one hand, little drawer, and he says, "What about this? What about the? I'm no alcoholic. What about this? What about the beers we're going to share later? What about the the wineries? What about this? You've given us an incomplete story. What about the 80 or 90 percent of Americans who use alcohol without a problem? Okay, flash forward. Same editor, same reporter. Editor says to the reporter, I want you to write me a story about methamphetamine in County X. The reporter goes out, goes to the jails, goes to the treatment programs, goes to the 12-step programs, all that sort of stuff, comes back and writes this devastating portrait of methamphetamine in County X. The editor looks at it and goes, great job, fantastic. Does he stop and say to the young reporter, wait a second, don't you have a biased sample here? You only interviewed people in jails and treatment programs. What about the people who are using meth who aren't in jail and treatment programs? What about the people who are using meth who, you know, attracted other people using meth because they weren't having a problem with it? What about, what about, what about, what about? <laughs> and the fact of the matter is they don't even stop to ask that question. And obviously it's not easy to answer because the people who are using methamphetamine without getting caught up in jail or, or the need for treatment programs, they don't want to tell anybody. So you have this very skewed perspective about what's going on where with alcohol or tobacco, we see the whole picture by and large, both its ugliness and its kind of normality. Whereas with other illicit drugs, apart from say marijuana, we tend to only see that tip of the iceberg, which is the ugly devastating part that lands up in treatment programs and criminal justice systems and not see all the rest of it. So, that, but that's a hard point to get across to people, you know, yes. it's not a soundbite. It's not a soundbite. By the way, I'm reminded now about, uh, I just uh, interviewed Ayelet Waldman on her uh, recent book, A Really Good Day, about microdosing with LSD. And here is a regular middle-class, straight-down-the-road person, as she uh, quite obviously is, uh, talking about microdosing with LSD, taking very tiny amounts, and the positive effect it's having on her, which is going to help me segue, unless there's anything more we're going to say about the drug wars perhaps into the psychedelic science conference that you uh, gave a talk at and which I attended as well uh, recently in in, uh, in Oakland, California. Um, well, Richard, I would just say is, is that it's more of a nice segue than you appreciate because Ayelet Walls, in addition to writing this wonderful book about microdosing, um, one of the ways she cut her teeth on this issue was when she interned at Drug Policy Alliance's legal affairs office years ago and um, and actually, one of the things I like about her writing is that she connects the issues of psychedelics to broader issues of drug policy and the drug war. So go right ahead. Yes. Well, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we had this uh, very uh, explosive introduction of LSD into our into our culture with Timothy Leary in the '60s. And so it was a great embarrassment to Albert Hoffman, who had discovered it way back in uh, in 1943, you know, the famous bicycle ride when he inadvertently took it in his laboratory and discovered that he had taken it, you know, later on after he had that famous bicycle ride. Then we had the, 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 uh, the explosion in the 60s, which led to criminalization, and so it set us back 50 years, and now we're starting to see a resurgence of research around the planet and that's what this psychedelic science conference was about 3,000 people from around the world got together in Oakland California what is your overall sense of the conference Ethan 
I, I, enjoyed it. I thought it was spectacular. I mean, first of all, I just have to say, you know, I've known Rick Doblin for 30 years now, and he's been my friend and ally in this broader cause of drug policy reform. Um, and one of the reasons why Drug Policy Alliance has done relatively less on the psychedelics compared to other drugs is because you have people not like, because actually specifically you have Rick out there in addition to a range of others with Hector Society and others doing such, such good work. So I really think that Rick Doblin is going to go down in history as, as really the pioneering figure of the late 20th and early 21st century in terms of, of changing the way that our society and our laws deal with psychedelics. And his pulling that conference together with 3,000 people from hard scientists and researchers to people involved in the whole alternative culture side to this thing to, you know, academics and, and uh, people from around the world and the whole bit, people from harm reduction, public health, medicine. I really think he's pulled together something in a way that's both strategic and, and, and also brave. You know, he's taken some flack from some of the more uh, 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 fearful and hyper-cautious uh, scientific researchers for making the science part of a broader movement around psychedelics. But I think, you know, the, the time is going to prove him very much right. I don't know if, if some of your uh, listeners saw the, uh, the big piece in the front page of the New York Times style section on this Sunday, which I thought was, you know, it, it sort of over the, the author seems a little too keen to write about the counterculture people dancing around without shoes element. But at the same time, it also captured the really important mix that was happening there, you know, which involves a lot of focus on real science, getting FDA-approved medication with MDMA and psilocybin and others. Um, I, I think that this conference was a real kind of coming of age, uh, uh, you know, for the psychedelics reform effort and movement. One of the things that impressed me a great deal about the conference, Ethan, is that the scientists uh, during this conference were now talking about large-scale, double-blind studies, which for a person like myself trained in science has, has a certain amount of meaning, whereas earlier at the uh, psychedelic conference, oh, was it six, seven years ago, we were still talking about maybe anecdotal or movies or much less scientifically oriented studies which were leading us in a good direction. But now we're talking about hard science, and we're also seeing at this conference people who came into the field of medicine and psychology as a result of others 15 or 20 years before them who were doing this research and who brought them into the field. So it's a second or even third generation of scientists. I'm sure. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, at the conference four years ago or six years ago, you had these folks there too, but what's happened is they proliferated. And part of it was that, you know, the persistence of MAPS and the folks at Hester in moving forward with getting the permissions to proceed with these studies. Some of it, some of the developments happening outside the United States. Um, you know, I think the advocacy of MAPS around this issue has been, has been wonderful. Uh, the growing interest for all sorts of reasons in, by academics in doing this. I also think that, you know, Michael Pollan, um, you know, the famous, you know, uh, writer about food, um, who's also written about drugs, who wrote the book The Botany of Desire and, and some other stuff. Yes. You know, Michael has a book forthcoming about psychedelics and medicine that will be out, I think, next year. And given his reputation and given his intelligence, I think that book, 
um, which was previewed a little bit was previewed in New Yorker magazine a year or two ago. Yes, I, I saw think that. that book was going to have a, a hugely, uh, a very, very big impact. In addition to everything else that's going on, I mean, dozens of documentaries coming out, more and more favorable coverage in the mainstream media. Um, so I, I think this is all headed in the right direction. Yeah. In fact, if I can plug myself, my book, Psychedelic Medicine, which is a compilation of some of the leading scientists in the United States doing research on psychedelic medicine, is coming out this year as well. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, the... Uh, the work that was done by uh, by Amanda Fielding and uh, and um, Doctor uh, what, what's Doctor Nutt's first name? You were on a panel with him, David. David Nutt. You know, he came out with some very strong. Uh, he's an Englishman, by the way. Oh, let, let me just back up for a second. For those of you listening, when uh, Ethan and I refer to Maps M A P S, we're talking about the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. You can easily find it on Google. And when you hear us refer to something called the Hefter Foundation, H E F T E R, you can find that on Google as well. And it's worth uh, looking at, at both of those. Were you surprised with the with the strength of Nuts, uh, Doctor David Nuts? statements on the uh, politics uh, and anti-politics of uh, drug research? No, no, I wasn't. I mean, first of all, I should say this was the first time I'd actually ever met David in person, which was a pleasure for me because I've been reading him and we corresponded by email over the years. Um, but remember, he first became widely known. I mean, he's already had a strong academic reputation, but he really became more widely known when he was chairing the British government's advisory council on the use and misuse of psychoactive drugs, and was pushed out for speaking truth to power, for speaking science to prejudice. And I think that galvanized him even further. So I was not surprised to hear David speaking out the way he is. I think he's a man who who goes where the science and where the ideas go. He has no shyness about being involved in the advocacy effort. So, you know, it's a tragedy that England has gone so far backward of late on, uh, you know, given the politics there. But I think David has been playing an enormously positive role. Now, you mentioned the word politics again. We have a little time left. I want you to talk some about the present administration in the United States and uh, Trump's recent uh, proclamation about what he's going to do with regard to drug policy. Yeah, sure. And I should say, Richard, next week is the um, biennial International Harm Reduction Conference, uh, which is going to be in Montreal uh, next beginning Sunday evening through Wednesday of next week. And um, there, there's a, something called the Harm Reduction Journal, where I and a colleague of mine at Drug Policy Alliance, Lindsay LaSalle, have an article basically addressing your question, which is what's going on now? How far has the U.S. come? Where does this still need to proceed? Yes. So, um, some of this stuff, I think, will be online next week. Um, that said, what I would say is, look, the, the, the election of Donald Trump and his appointment of Jeff Sessions and other people of that ilk is obviously a nightmare for the country and the world in a great variety of areas, and certainly on drug policy, right? I mean, Trump, we know, you know, really played the, um, you know, he's trying to resuscitate the drug war, um, Jeff Sessions is a true drug war dinosaur and a reefer madness ideologue. 
right, where Donald Trump will at least say that he respects medical marijuana, believes it's real, doesn't want to crack down on it. Jeff Sessions has yet to offer that kind of assurance, right? When it comes to the broader marijuana legalization effort, you know, Trump has been not said anything since he got elected, but by and large seems to be giving, you know, Jeff Sessions room to run. And Jeff Sessions was at the far extreme of the right wing of the Republican Party, right? Even when others were willing to look for accommodations, this is a guy like a throwback to the reefer madness days of Harry Anslinger and, uh, you know, the Reagan and Bush, or early Bush administrations and, and even the last Bush administration. So we really have a problem here. I think on marijuana policy, what it means is that the, the Justice Department um, is going to look to throw wretches into the works, right? They are going to appoint uh, U.S. attorneys, the chief federal prosecutors in states all around the country, with a brief to try to find ways to, you know, hobble this marijuana policy reform movement in the marijuana industry. I think they will use the federal government's civil asset forfeiture powers. I think they will ally with locals, with state and local sheriffs and DAs who are hostile to marijuana reform. I think they will present themselves as defending the anti-marijuana states and Nebraska's and the Idaho's against the pro-marijuana states, the Colorado's and the other western states that are doing this. So I think that we, that, that you know, uh, there's a lot to be concerned about here. I don't think that they can ultimately reverse the momentum or public support for the legalization of marijuana. I mean, that's gone from 25% in the in the mid-80s uh, mid and low-30s in the 90s, up to 60% today. Uh, I don't think they're going to want to really, you know, hobble the entire medical marijuana effort, but they are going to create problems, no doubt. They are going to try to sow a sense of fear and intimidation in this community. Do you think when it comes that, do, to the broader drug? Well, yeah, I was going to ask, do you think they're going to override state laws by using federal authority, for example, and come into California and start making arrests of these laws? Remember, it's all illegal under federal law. That's so right. The vast majority, but, you know, as what happened with the repeal of alcohol, remember, in the late 20s, early 30s, the states repealed their own alcohol prohibition laws and basically said to the feds, if you want to enforce alcohol prohibition, do it with your own folks. But the federal law enforcement, you know, is only a tiny fraction of all law enforcement in this country. So there's just not the, the sort of people power in federal government uh, uh, in order to really do this. So I think what they're going to try to do is to find efficient ways to use the federal government's relatively limited manpower resources to go after this. Now, the states are constitutionally able to repeal their own marijuana prohibition laws, as they've done. And there's no, nobody can argue with that. Where, the big question is this. What's still up in the air is whether or not state governments can legally regulate an industry, which is legal under state law, but illegal under federal law. Yes. And the question, I think, for the, for the sessions and others in that world is, do they want to try to go after the power of state governments to regulate? Because if they do that successfully... What they will do is be promoting chaos because you now have a, 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 a the marijuana industry at this point is worth what maybe fifty billion dollars a year, of which maybe twenty percent of that is is more and more in the legal world and eighty percent is remaining in the illegal world. The question that Sessions and those guys have to consider is: Do they want to throw the entire thing back into the black market with all the crime and the violence and all the other problems and lost tax revenue and 
all that. And I don't know. I don't know what they're going to decide on that, you know. Richard, I should say, apart from the marijuana thing, when you look at the broader issue of mass incarceration and the growing momentum and the bipartisan momentum for rolling back mass incarceration, once again, that's another area where Sessions is an outlier, right? I mean, you have prominent Republicans at the state level, at the federal level, who were saying, too many people behind bars, let's try to pull it back, let's, you know, let's pull it back, especially on the drug thing. And you had Sessions, when he was in the Senate, and now as Attorney General, basically saying, not interested. So we'll I see. think the we'll... federal government, they're going to slow the progress of sentencing reform at the federal level. But meanwhile, the momentum for reform is so strong at the state and local level that I actually think there's a good chance that by the time we get to the end of the Trump administration's, uh, you know, term in office, I think there's still a good chance we will have fewer people behind bars in 2020 than we do today, because so much of that is at the state and local level, and there's so much momentum behind that reform. Let's end right there on that very upbeat note that we're going to be doing it better and making progress. Ethan, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a great program. I look forward to catching up with you in the future as you start wherever you're going to go now that you've retired as founder and director of the Drug Policy Alliance. And well, well, thank you very much, Richard, and thank you for all your good works and for doing this show and spreading the wisdom. And thank you all, our listeners, for tuning in today to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please tune in again exactly two weeks from now at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time, and we shall return. <laughs>